My name is Luther, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And through God's grace in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've not found it necessary to take alcohol or any other mood-altering stimulant since November the 16th of 1963. And there's only one way that this guy could get from the skid row to Vancouver and the Salvation Army mission to Cincinnati, and it's through the grace of God and the fellowship of AA. And and that has a, a real impact on me because when I looked up the word grace, it said an unearned favor. I'm not here because of how nice I treated people. That is why we got here. And I realized in this big book I have it here in front of me, it's going to catch on one day in this fellowship. It's a blue book. <laughs> it's actually quite reasonable. I know if you're like any of the alcoholics that I know, you've got a library of above and beyond and over and below and searching for serenity and everything else that are $29.95 each, and this one is about $8 and it has all that in it. In fact, they wrote all them other ones out of this one. And I'll refer to this periodically. I read one story every Friday out of this book, and it happens to be a lady's story, Freedom from Bondage. I read that 52 times a year. I read eight pages a day out of this every day of the year, 365 days a year. And I don't quote what pages stuff is on, but there's some vital information in here, and it's quite foreign to most of us because it's based on reality, and, 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 and it's not a good thing to talk about. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit temperamental, 50% temper and 50% mental, so I'm in the right place. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank the committee for inviting Linda and I here, uh, uh, Jack and Liz and the roadrunner who picked us up at the airport, John, and uh, we've had a, we've just had a fantastic time. And I was saying to Linda, I said, you know, this is, is different than just about all the roundups and conventions I've been to from South Africa to Dawson City in the Yukon, and she said it's the people. This is the liveliest, laughingest, talkingest group of people I've ever ran into. And that's what this thing is all about. I've always said, and this is one of my opinions, if you're not happy staying sober, you'll eventually drink. There's something in the back of, in, in our big book. It says that we will only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. It doesn't say you'll go back drinking or using something. It says the only thing that will defeat me is from here to here. What a comforting thing. <laughs> In the book, it says the main problem with the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. You can talk about any portion of a man's anatomy. He'll even brag about some of them, but don't discuss his head. <laughs> he don't want anyone in there unsolicited telling him he's nuts. <laughs> so uh, these are the things that I believe in. I believe what's printed in here. And another thing that I became aware of today here is that you two people have a... a, a, a a goal for Bill and I. We're both going to die. <laughs> I got news for you. So are the rest of you. <laughs> That's part of God's plan. Maybe you haven't noticed that. Anyway, now that we got the spiritual part over with, you know, <clears throat> we're a group of people that are, are quite interesting. I say I'm a recovered alcoholic. 
And uh, that used to upset a lot of people. Today, I really don't give a damn. <laughs> Most people that read a book, they start reading the book because they want to get into the story. I think it's so important to read the preface of a book and the forward to a book so you'll know what you're reading the book for. <laughs> In here it says, this is how 150,000 alcoholics have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. We hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. What a promise. To, to tell me that I don't have to buy any other books. <laughs> There's this and the 12 and 12. Not the 12 by 12. That's a piece of timber. The 12 and 12. They go together. You know, one tells me how to live with me and the other one tells me how to live with you. And those are both vital. Because if you still got the attitude, well, if you don't like me the way you are, screw me, they will. Keep your back to the wall. This whole thing is designed for me to live in society with other people in other places doing other things and, and on and on and on. But what was interesting in that first statement is says is not to tell other people how we have stayed sober, but to show them. What a difference. I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. It says, I can soon learn how to do it if you let me see it done. Put your tongue too fast in action and your hands too fast may run. All the lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but there's no mistake or understanding in how you live and what you do. And so it really doesn't matter what I tell you. It just doesn't matter. If I don't live that way, it really doesn't mean too much. So God's will for me is to be happy, joyous, and free. And the only way I can be happy, and the only way I can be joyous, and the only way I can free, be free is based solely on how I treat you. I got in here because of how I treated me. I woke up with the gimmies and went to bed with the wants. <laughs> and that's what got me here. I hear people say that alcoholics have above average intelligence, but I only hear that at AA meetings, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I have never been at one of these deals where the theme was the keen alcoholic mind. <laughs> We're the only people that have never learned nothing from our past experience. Other people have, not the drunk. We don't learn nothing from our past experiences. We want to be a part of the show. We want to be in on the play, and yet we haven't got a clue what it's about. It's like the two hunters in Ontario up in Canada, the northern part of Canada. They were flown into this lake to go hunting, and the float plane pulled up to the dock and let the two of them out, and he said, now remember, he said, I'll be back and get you next Tuesday, and two moose is all we can take out of here on this aircraft, and they said, no problem. Away they went. They, he come back next Tuesday and he taxied up to the dock and he got out and here they are and they got three moose. He said, I told you. He said, we can't take three moose out on this small aircraft and you two and all your gear. And they said, look, we heard that crap last year from the pilot. We gave him $500 and he took our three moose out. So this pilot, he went for it. He took the $500, loaded the three moose, the 200s and their gear in. And they went down the lake and cleared the water and cleared the trees. And they went about 7,000 feet and crashed. When they finally come through, one hunter said to the other, he said, where are we? He said, 1,000 yards further than we got last year. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
You see, the drunk, he hears the stories, he hears all this, and he'll laugh like hell, but he didn't get the message. It's like the guy that, it's like the guy, guy that made this kite, and he's trying to fly it. And he never put that tail on the end of it, the stringer, and he throws that up in the air, and he runs like hell, and it goes about ten feet and in the ground. He throws it up again, it went about twenty feet and into the ground. His wife is watching him. She must have been now, non lady. And she finally looked out the door and she said, You bloody dummy, you need more tail. He said, Make up your mind. Last night you told me to go fly a kite. So, I mean, <laughs> you, you have to be careful what you tell a drunk. But anyway, you know, they say we tell in a general way what we was like, what happened and what we're like now. And I was sober a long time before I realized what that said. It said we tell in a general way what we were like. Not what I drank like. What was I like when I drank? What happened and what am I like now? I is the smallest word in the English language and carries the least amount of importance. And the two shortest words in the dictionary are the hardest two to get out of people, yes and no. And once you take alcohol out of the word alcoholism, you got three letters left, I-S-M, which is I, self, and me. And that's the ism we suffer from. Because if that was the case, we've all quit drinking, we shouldn't even be here today. We, we, we've got no difficulties. And it's unfortunate that the alcohol is so unjustly blamed for so many things. That I did that, well, what do you expect? You know, he made a pass at that guy's wife. He was drunk like hell. I've been looking at her for a long time. And I... This program has got Lou Finnemore to know Lou Finnemore. That's what it's got me to do. And I, I like in the freedom from bondage in the first page. He says, the medical profession would say I'm the way I am now because of what happened to me as a child. But AA has taught me that I'm the way I am now because of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. And I think that's so important. It's our reactions. I get people going by me every day. I drive uh, seven, yeah, 6,000 kilometers a month just to work back and forth to the racetrack. And I get people going by me and their fingers up in the air and they're shaking their fists and their mouths going. They pull in front of me and it says, easy does it, live and let live. Put them on your dash. <laughs> we always put vital information where we can't read it. And wondering why he isn't getting the message. And we wonder why people look at us. You know, we've turned two million people loose on society with no last names. Lou F. I mean, we're, we're just, when they say awesome, I know where the hell they come from. I was speaking at a, a deal uh, several years ago, and this young fellow came up afterward, and he said, Man, you're cool. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever looked up the meaning of the word cool, but it says not so hot. <laughs> so the next guy that tells you you're cool, what he really told you is you're not that hot. <laughs> I mean, these words we toss around, they sign, find uh, really neat. And, uh, you know, we can speak in a fine spray of generalities, but nothing concrete you can put your finger on. But the bottom line is, in Alcoholics Anonymous, is somewhere during the process, AA is a process from the day you enter till the day you leave. And it's the only process where you never finish it. Because where you left off, God's got someone else stepping in to begin his process and carry on. It's not a something that you, you finish. I look at Bill sitting here like it was interesting last night when you stop and think about it, that from 25 years to 50 years, Four people stood up. 
that tells me something. In the area that I'm from, I'm seeing a lot of people go back with a lot of years. 35, 32, 29 and a half, a husband and wife of 24, a guy just a few weeks ago, never gone to less than eight meetings a week. From the day he came in, he was at a meeting at my at the racetrack on a Wednesday and got drunk the next day, 24 and a half years. So nothing in here says if you go to meetings, you'll stay sober. This is a process. And so, for some, uh, if there's a plea that I can send out, is to, to please find out what the process is and, and follow it. You know, it's like the, the Pope was in Vancouver. And he was at our big dome stadium, the whole 70,000 people. And when he got done his service, he asked if there was any people who would like to come forward and be prayed for and blessed and people with difficulties. And a blind man come forward and he prayed for him and he blessed him and he could see. And a person in a wheelchair come forward and he prayed for them and blessed them and they got up and walked. And a person with crutches came forward and he prayed for them and he blessed them and they threw away the crutches. And that night he went back to the Hotel Vancouver and he was walking through the foyer to the elevator and he pressed the button and the elevator doors opened there was a guy standing there in crutches and he seen the Pope he said, don't touch me, I'm on workers' compensation. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think this is how the drunk sees all these messages. Is that he sees them but somewhere through the message and the process, he didn't get the answer. And the answer is here in this big book. It's here. I was born on the east coast of Canada. Canada's approximately 5,000 miles across. I was born right on the border of the state of Maine, Fort Fairfield, Maine. And the Bible says the wise men come from the east, and I've been wise enough to stay the hell out in the west, I'll tell you that. Uh, not a whiz, lot of wisdom from where I come from. But there's an interesting thing happened, and there's a couple of little things I want to mention. They, they, they're very important to me. I was taken away from my real mom from what Linda and I have found out when I was six or seven or nine months of age or something like that. My mom was a gorgeous lady. She was the splitting image of Olivia de Havilland. The floppy hats. She were, had a railroad a hotel in a little railroad divisional town where I lived, and she supplied the men with everything food, loving, and lodging. And they took me away from her because she would leave me for long periods in an old house and she'd be gone somewhere. And where I come from, there was no such a thing as, uh, as adoption papers and adoption courts. They just took you from this family and give you to another one. That's what they did. And they gave me to the two people who raised me, my mom and dad. And then they apparently gave me back to my mom a couple of months later, and it never worked out, and they took me away and gave me back to mom and dad who raised me. And I met my real mom when I was about 11, I think, 10 or 11 I met her. And she was a beautiful lady. But I think the interesting thing was that I was a very skinny kid when I was small. Tall, skinny, big ears, boils. I had boils all over my neck. And then and they teased me. All the kids teased me. And when they found out who my real mother was, they started teasing me about my real mother. Today they call them hookers, but in them days they call them a whore. And that's what they told me my mom was. And I started fighting. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if you can fight. 
But I get guys coming in my office all the time from back where I'm from, the East Coast, and they say, no, I'm a good fighter too, Lou. And I look at them, they got scars going 17 directions. And I said, I hate to tell you that in sobriety, but you got that all messed up. <laughs> good fighters got no marks. <laughs> now, you know, I, I won a lot of flights, and when you looked at me, they were usually split decisions by looking at me. I think the whole thing about it, as I look around this room today, and there's not much doubt in my mind that 95% or 100% of these men can beat hell out of me. That don't mean you're tough. That just means you can beat me in a physical confrontation. We'll find out how tough you are when you go out there and face life on life's terms. This is where toughness is decided. It's not in back alleys. I have followed uh, a bit of the career of Sugar Ray Leonard, and apparently he's a quite a scrapper. <laughs> and his face is just like glass, you know. And I look at his one loss record, and it's much better than mine. <laughs> much better than mine. And so, all of a sudden, we realize to come in here and find out that we're in here because of the things we were bad at, not because of the things we were good at. And that couple that raised me, I'm the only child. And Daddy couldn't read or write at all. And we found out not too long ago my mom's got grade 5 education. But when I was about 16 years of age, or a little, just over 16 years of age, they put me in jail for 30 days for impaired driving and car theft. And that was the beginning of a lot of stops in a lot of jails. I've been in just about every decent jail from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Vancouver, B.C. <laughs> And shortly after I got out of jail, about six months later in the summer, I come home on a Wednesday, and I'd been gone since Friday night with three of my buddies and on, a, on a drunk. And this was a teenager. And I come in home about noon on the Wednesday, and my mom started giving me a lecture, I think as any mom would do. And I hauled off and smashed her in the face, and she went down in front of our kitchen sink. And I grabbed some clothes and took off for Halifax, Nova Scotia, before Dad got home. Now, mind you, I was just before my 17th birthday. In 1985, Mom phoned and asked me if I'd come back home and see her. She was 72 years old the next time I seen her. And I'm a tough son of a bitch. I want you to know that. I want to tell you, when you start dealing with what you've done and how you've reacted and how you've acted and how you've treated people and how you've seen other people and the conditions under which they live in, that's what will bring you to this fellowship and get you to know what really brought me here. She was 72 years old the next time I seen my mom. And I'd been sober 19 years. So I want to tell you that I, I don't go into a drink-by-drink -drink tour of the country, but I wasn't the most pleasant person you could ever come around. And I went to Halifax and started driving for Allied Van Lines. And that was my career for some... 18 years or so was moving furniture. And I went across, I got married when I was 18, and nine months later, I left that lady and she had a baby. And uh, I've never seen that little girl since. Uh, I'm going to find her just to let her know that I'm there if she needs me. That's, uh, she's 45 years old. And what's interesting, when I went to the West Coast and 
met Winnie. Uh, we had another daughter, and I named her the same thing, Darlene Lorraine. I have two daughters with exactly the same name. Our lives is not something that, that you just stand out in the general population of the public and talk about. They just wouldn't understand it. And you see, it's unfortunate that we seem to be judged today by what we've got or what we've accomplished. And in the back of this book it says, Success and failure are never final, and neither one are very important in the final assessment of every man. And yet I'm as humble as anybody ever seen with fifty dollars in my pocket, and if I got a thousand you'd think Errol Flynn just strolled into the room. <laughs> These are the things that AA has made me aware of. I didn't know that before I come here. I didn't know that. I, I, a lot of people talk about my one-liners. I think I have every book there is in my library on one-liners. Will Rogers, President Kennedy, Oscar Wilde, Michael Todds, and many of these things, uh, we laugh at them, but we realize where they come. Mahalia Jackson said, I've been rich and I've been poor, and rich is better. <laughs> they asked Nelson Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he said, more. <laughs> now, I don't know if he'd ever come to AA or not. I have no idea. But this, is, this was our life. Whatever we got, there was never enough. We wanted more. Michael Todd said, one statement I could never stand with was that it's tough to be poor. Because he said, being poor is a state of mind. Being broke is a temporary circumstance. Old Oscar Wilde said, don't ever regret growing old. Think of those that are never given that privilege. You don't have to read 800 pages to get a message of what God's will is for you. Is to be happy, joyous, and free. I landed in Vancouver some 41 years ago. And I went to the place that I was most comfortable. I stayed my first night at the Union Rooms, which is right above our old detox today on Skid Row to Vancouver. And I had a room overlooking. I don't know what didn't have a window. <laughs> and it was a very comfortable place. A lot of people don't really, they talk about Skid Rows that people who haven't been there, well, I would never want to land on Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row is it's, it's people. It's just an address in a city. Uh, I know some Skid Rows in British properties in Vancouver, and the cheapest home there is a half a million dollars. A lot of Skid Rows up there. Dreadful Skid Rows up there. Uh, and the reason I say them is because they're hidden behind elaborate doors and walls. Or the ones downtown, you just drive through and you can see them. They're not, they're not inside, they're outside. And the thing with Skid Road is that it's, it's the greatest escape in the world. Your brother don't bother you, your wives don't bother you, bill collectors never bug you, nobody knows nothing about you, and nobody really wants to know a great deal about you. It's, it's a very safe place to be. <coughs> I met a fellow down there one day, and I used to do a, a lot of singing. I love to sing. It's my life. You know, up until three, four years ago, I guess, I think I had the third largest record collection in North America. And uh, I just love music. It's given me so much peace. It's, it's given me so much insight. The songs and the lyrics to music has taught me so much. You wouldn't know it to look and listen to me, but it has. <laughs> his guy and I used to sing, and I met a friend of his in this beer parlor down at, in in uh, the Skid Row to Vancouver and he said I'm going over to this lady's house come on with me so we went over and oh my God was, was we drunk 
how the hell we get over there, I have no idea in this car. But we walked into this lady's house, and she had just been evicted from the home she was living in with four children, and had just moved in the day before into this house. She was on welfare, and I had got a job with a trucking company there. We walked in, and we were only there about 20 minutes, and she she threw both him and I out because of the condition we were in. We went and slept that night in that car, and the next morning when we woke up, I vaguely remember this house. And I said to Chuck, I said, where was this house we was at last night? Oh, he said, it's down on Wall Street, this lady. And I said, take me back there. So we headed back, and we went, come and buy a corner store, and I said, stop here. And I went in and bought a pound of bacon, a loaf of bread, and some eggs. And I took them back, and we pulled up in front of this lady's house. I walked in. I put them on the table, and I said, cook me some breakfast. And she did. And I was there for the next 13 years. <laughs> I'm just like a dog. You feed me and I don't leave. <laughs> well, this woman got an introduction to a lifestyle that she never dreamed of before. And she was a, a, an alky, but not like me. I looked at this furniture within very short order and I thought this furniture is not good enough for these kids. And I got rid of it all. It came from St. Vincent de Paul and we got new furniture. And this was her first introduction to bailiffs repossession of furniture. In them days in, in British Columbia, they didn't have to have no warnings. They could walk into your house right now and take everything in the house except the beds. They had to leave the beds for the children. Other than that, strip it. Well, I want to tell you, I had trucks just coming and going constantly. We had stoves repossessed before they even got the paper scraped off of the window on the front of it. And you see, I found nothing unusual about that at all. My wife tells a story when she talks sometime when a bailiff come one time to repossess the TV and I helped him load it. I just said, where's your truck? And I mean, this is the type of responsibility that I had, is nothing really was a big deal. Nothing was embarrassing. Like I messed my pants on that skid road and sat in it for three days. And do you think that bothered me? Not at all. I could puke all over myself. And you know, I adjusted to that just like that. Bothered other people. You know what you look like? Why would I worry? You're looking at me. You're dealing with it. Uh, nothing really bothered me. I just adjusted to whatever I had to adjust to. And then November the 16th of 1963, uh, Winnie and I were apart again on one of our partings. We'd part for a week, two weeks, a month, uh, four days. I got thrown out of the Rainier Hotel, which is right in the heart of the Skid Road of Vancouver, for what I pray to God was my last drunk. And I got back up to the house where her and the kids were, and I have no idea how. But I got up there, and I knocked on the door, and she opened the door. And I she asked me what I was doing there, and I was always asked questions that I didn't couldn't answer. I didn't know what the hell I was doing there. But she let me in. <clears throat> And I'll tell you the situation we were in. There was five children then. We had had a, a, a girl. Lights were shut off. Phone was disconnected. Furniture repossessed. We're on human resources welfare. I owed $7,300 at 51 different places. Now, you'll say $7,300 ain't a lot of money. Yeah, uh, 35 years ago, it's like a half a million today. And I was in small debt court 41 times my first two years sober. 
And at that time, Winnie was cooking on a Coleman camp stove, whatever she had to feed the children. And Einstein returned. <laughs> the next morning, I had had a half a bottle that I brought home with me. And I have no idea. These are the, the questions that will probably be never be answered. I woke up in the morning, and I went to take a drink, and a, this voice as clear as... Liz talking to me. Well, not quite that clear. But said to me, Lou, your drinking days are all over. And I looked at Winnie and I said, what's the number of Alcoholics Anonymous? Now, I'd like to tell you, I don't ever recall ever hearing anybody talk about Alcoholics Anonymous in my whole life. I don't know. I've never heard it mentioned. She said to me, if you want the goddamn number, go look it up. And that's the most she'd said to me in ages. And I thought, now, she's thinking about reconciliation. <laughs> I looked up the number. We didn't have a phone. I went next door to Bill Brown's house. He worked for Molson's Breweries. And I phoned Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the part I think that's so important. Uh, I've talked enough about my drinking. You name it, I've drank it. I phoned Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of the loveliest voice answered the phone, Lucy. She died with cancer. She, all she asked me was where I lived. How old was I? And she said, I'll have two guys come to see you. Today, they fill out a whole form now when you phone in. And so I sat there. And I had a whole bunch of intellectual questions. And I was all ready for battle. And they sent two of the dumbest bastards I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and they were from Nova Scotia, where I'm from, back in the East Coast. And I thought, you've been watching the seagulls too long to let these two birds here. <laughs> so they come in. Now, I want to tell you something. And this is where this keen alcoholic mind never clicks in. When you get two people coming to your home to help you, and they have to sit on the floor, you shouldn't have a lot to say. <laughs> In fact, above all, you shouldn't have a lot of questions to ask. But I started tearing people apart. And these were two brothers. And one guy would say, hold it, Lou. He said, easy does it. Every now and then I'd get all wound up and he'd poke his brother in the ribs. And he'd say, ain't that right, Don? He'd say, yep. And that's all he said all afternoon. Every time he got hit in the ribs, he'd say, yep. <laughs> then I'd go out to my neighbor and and the smart one, the four-word one, he'd say, no, Lou, we do it one day at a time. I'd get going again, and he'd say, oh, look, Lou, come on, just live and let live. And I thought, well, this is really going somewhere. <laughs> About five o'clock, uh, they'd had all they could take, and they said, we'll be back tonight and get you and take you to a meeting. And the four-word guy, the smart one, when he was leaving, he said, just remember, if you don't take that first drink, Lou, you'll stay sober. And he walked out, and I thought, you know, that man's got something. I looked at Winnie. I said, that guy's got something. About three months later, it hit me. How inconsiderate can you be to get two people to drive 40 miles to tell you if you don't drink, you'll stay sober? I'd never thought of that. <laughs> so... All of a sudden, I become aware of, just talk common sense to an alkene. He won't know what in hell is going on. Stay out of that theory stuff. He loves that. He'll get you. But just talk common sense, and you got him right where the hair is short. Just, just hang right in there. you got him. Don't, don't get away from that. Stay right with him. 
they went out the door, and this is the part that really, uh, uh, the most important thing that, that really has come to me in, in this fellowship. Is that when I, they went out the door, and I went across the alley to a guy's house that I had been drinking with the day before. And I know now none of you people have done this. I walk up his back steps, I walked in his kitchen, he was sitting there with a glass of whiskey. He went to take a drink. I said, put that down, I'll kill you. <laughs> now, you can't describe a, a look. you got to see it, you know, like Red Skelton. He said, uh, what happened to you? I said, I quit drinking. He said, when? I said, must be six, eight hours now. <laughs> he... I, I remember Roy, God, these are a few of the things I remember. He looked out the window to see, you know, if the Jehovah Witness got a hold of me or something. And he said, will you leave? And I did. You know, that'll be 34 years next Sunday, and he's never spoken a word to me from that day to this. Isn't that interesting? What's the saying in the book? But the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution who is properly armed with facts about himself, not AA, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a matter of hours. Until this is done, little or nothing can be accomplished. And here the Oral Roberts of AA was heading out. I lived in Little Italy to get all them Italians to pour their wine out. I'm lucky I got to my first meeting. And I see all kinds of people sobering up today, and they said, Boy, i got a brother who should be in here. Well, he will if you shut up. <laughs> and i got a sister that could sure use this. We drive everybody right the hell away from us. And these are the things that I learned slowly. That night they come and get me for my first meeting. And this was my first introduction to total confusion. I'm six foot tall, 130 pounds. Four pounds as ears. I don't have the boils anymore, but I got them wine sores all over me. If you've ever had them between your fingers, then little, the, you get them goosebumps and they'll just pop and infect it. I had a black shoe on and a brown one. And I walked in, the first guy who met me at the door, he said, Welcome, you're in the right place. And I thought, Now he spotted something nobody else has ever recognized. <laughs> 29 years old, first time in my life I was ever told you're in the right place. Judges have told me where I should be. Wives have told me where I should be. Employers have told me where I should be. You know an interesting thing? Every company that's ever fired me is still doing good. <laughs> and I used to leave thinking you'll regret it. And they probably have, but they have not notified me. <laughs> and isn't it amazing? I don't know about you, but every algae I meet just about is working for an idiot. <laughs> The guy that signed your check, this bloody jerk, I don't know how he ever got there. Ask him. You won't like that answer neither. Where I come from, if the desire to work hits people, they lay down till it leaves. <laughs> they sat me right in the front row in the first meeting. And every speaker was a sort of a vintage model, about my age now. And they had these suspenders on. They could lean way over backwards and their head would touch the floor and their feet would never come off. And they'd swing back up again. Most of them had no teeth. And they'd say, material things don't mean nothing. And I thought, well, if I looked like that, they wouldn't mean a hell of a lot to me neither. 
And I watched them leave in Buicks and Lincolns and Cadillacs, and I thought, I missed something in their bloody tongue. <laughs> and it's amazing how this thing, this process unfolds. Material things mean sweet bugger all to me today, because I got them. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know none of you people ever do this. You get a new guy, and he's worried about where his wife is and his kitties, and you say, don't worry about that, it's not important. Really? Because you're going home to yours. Everything is important. Everything is important. I've recovered from that hopeless state of mind and body. Oh, that ain't for me. No, I can't go there. I can't. I can do anything I want. I'm not in that hopeless state of mind and body anymore. I don't live with that fear that I can't do this, can't go there, can't do that. Fear is false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R. We're scared to death and don't know how to tell people what we're scared of. So all of a sudden I ran into all this confusion. And I went home with all of this that material things don't mean nothing. No relationships for the first year. The people that told me that walked out with their partner. Never had a single person tell me that. Never have. I've never had a person that was penniless tell me material things didn't mean nothing. I mean, I think it's important. It says the purpose of the process of this thing is for me to understand where Marty is today. Not to get in my high podium. Well, that ain't important. Really. When you're unwanted, unloved, and hated, and despised, and you walk into this room today, and someone gives you that little glimmer of hope that you're wanted, that you're needed, and that you belong, hang on to it. It might only come once. You are needed. You do belong. And you are wanted. And I think that's so important. Sponsorship is mentioned here. I just think it's so vital. I hear people say, well, I fired my sponsor. Really? Did he get separation pay and, a, and that and, and a holiday slip and that? I'd say, yeah, how, how long are you sober? i got nine months now. How long is he sober? Thirty years. And you fired him, did you? <laughs> clever. <laughs> Very Clever. I like that that quality of keenness to observe that that quickly. I've never fired a sponsor. I was just damn grateful they tolerated me. I'm just so grateful that they tolerated me. That they tolerated my behavior after I come to AA. I had an excuse prior to AA. I didn't have an excuse after AA. That was November the 16th. Two weeks later, I found one sucker left, and he loaned me $200, and I bought a truck and started a trucking business. $200 truck. I like to tell this a little bit about my story, my business cards. Then I ordered some business cards. My business cards cost twice as much as the truck did. These, I... <laughs> now... Oh, oh, don't laugh. This is, this is good. Uh, <laughs> I still have some of these business cards today. This is 34 years ago. You don't even see cards like this today. They were black embossed cards, and the guy said, we can do this 14-karat gold flake lettering. I thought, that's it. <laughs> Citywide cartage, moving and storage. Lewis Finnemore, president. $200 truck. I'm the president of a trucking company. If you're the only employee, call yourself whatever in hell you want. My titles run concurrent. I was chairman of the board one week and the treasurer the next week. 
I got rid of that truck and got another one a couple of three weeks later. It burned five gallons of re-refined oil a day. I want to tell you, I'd come up Argyle Street off Marine Drive and people couldn't come out of their house for a week for smoke. <laughs> I get so busy looking for the second truck, they repossessed the first one. I got a quarter page ad I'd had put in the yellow pages and my phone was disconnected. Then I got me a white Cadillac. I thought it was far more important to look successful and be successful. And if I had to quit work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I was in front of an AA meeting with that caddy sitting there. It was a 59 caddy coupe de ville with them big bullet taillights. And everyone would say, boy, Lou must be doing good. Now, it appeared that way. <laughs> but if you get into this book, it covers that too. It says outward appearances is not inward reality at all. And do you know, isn't it amazing we judge everybody by what we see? We just won't take the time that this process requires to get inside them and find out what makes them tick. If they're hurting, we haven't got the time to find out why they're hurting. We just want to go and tell the next one, see, boy, I was just talking to Lou, man, is that guy ever hurting today? And we pass on the message, but we never, ever get to the process. And I'm fortunate that I had sponsors that wanted to get to the process. And some of their explanations was not, you wouldn't call them dainty, and they weren't, they weren't, uh, put in a manner where they weren't considering how sensitive I was. <laughs> Not at all. But we were eating dinner one day, and we heard a couple of clunks and looked, and away went the Cadillac. They repossessed that. And the story went on and on and on and on. Phone disconnected. My lights were shut off. They repossessed the truck. They repossessed the Cadillac. And I was going to 12 meetings a week. That's all you was going to then. And, and I'm thinking the more meetings I go to, the more they take away. And now there's, there's something in here in the book, it says whenever we are deeply disturbed, the first job is to quell that disturbance regardless of who or what we thought caused it. It doesn't say who or what caused it, it's who or what we thought caused it. And so when they repossessed my car, you know what I did. I ran around AA and said, whatever you do, don't deal with that bloody Abco Delta. What a bunch of bandits they are. No, they're fine business people. High interest rates. In fact, apparently they're still in business. Not because of me. But, you see, my whole thing was, was never to be responsible. It says, whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for this, I am responsible. They said... <clears throat> Trust God, clean house, and help others. You know, this is the only organization, fellowship, brotherhood, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever joined, that everything they've asked me to do, i got the qualifications. I didn't go have to take a course. It's so, so interesting. I didn't have to go take a course. So, you know, a little while later, they seen fit to give me a couple of new trucks on credit and, and then a couple of more, and, and I stayed in that for... Eleven years, and a fella that I had brought to Alcoholics Anonymous, he was a Danish man, and he owned the four top custom-designed jewelry stores in the city of Vancouver, the most expensive stores that were there. And one day he said, phoned and said, can I have lunch with you? And I said, uh, sure. So I, I went and had lunch with him, and he said, you know, I've listened to you talking, and I've listened to you chair the step meetings that you have. He said, how would you like to manage my main jewelry store? And I said, I'd love it. And why I said that, I have no idea. I put an ad in the paper and sold a trucking company. And about four or five weeks later, somewhere in there, I went to work on a Monday morning setting in 
the top jewelry store in the city of Vancouver as the manager. I didn't even have a wristwatch. I didn't know a ruby was red or an emerald was green. <laughs> he went to the bank and a lady came in, and her name was Mrs. Saba. She owned Saba's Lady Shops, which was the most exclusive stores in the city. And she dumped out some gemstones on a beautiful burgundy felt pad and said, what can you do with these? And I felt like saying puke. And I, and I thought, well, how did I get into this? And Ragnar come back from the bank and he straightened us all out. And that night he said, I, I want you to forget about meetings tonight. He said, I want you to sit down and write down every reason of why a person wouldn't want to buy a piece of jewelry in this store. And what he was talking about was handling objectives. <laughs> you know, when you get the finger and they slam the door and bugger off. That's what we got to learn to handle. And that's what I did. And do you know, from that day on, <clears throat> there's been a lot of things come my way. I've had a lot of heartaches and a lot of hardships and a lot of no's and a lot of doors slammed. And yet, you know, I'm scared to pray for anything for fear I get it. Scared to pray for anything for fear I get it. Because today, I think that there's things that we look at uh, about, are we really grateful? Do we think of other people? You know, it's like the, the young guy was sitting on the bus just before Valentine's Day. And an old guy got on and had a gorgeous arrangement of flowers and sat down beside the young fella. And the young fella looked at the old boy and he said, Boy, someone's going to get a nice gift this Valentine's. And the old fella said, Yep. He looked over at the young fella. He said, Do you have a girlfriend? He said, Yes, I do. He said, I'm giving her this card this year. He said, That's all I can afford to give her. And the old fella said, That's good. A little while later, the old man reached up and pulled the cord on the bus. And as the bus pulled into the curb and to stop, the old man took the flowers and set them in the young guy's lap. He said, give these to your girlfriend. He said, my wife would like that. And the young fellow watched as the bus pulled in and the old fellow got off of the bus and walked through the gates into a cemetery. How many times do we think of someone else? It's like the lady that lived in upstate New York and her son lived in Florida and he had two little kids, little boy and little girl. It's his grandchildren. And he wouldn't let her come to see him because she was a drunk. And finally his mom sobered up and he said, come on down. And she went down and the first day she was there, she took the little boy and little girl down and set them right by the ocean. First time she'd been with her grandchildren. And all of a sudden a wave come in and picked the little boy up and washed him right out into the ocean. And she looked up and said, dear God, if you've never done anything for me before in your life, would you return my grandson? And in the next movement, a wave came in and plunked him right at her feet. And she looked down, looked back up, and said, he had a cap. <laughs> and, I think these are some of the things that go on in life, and, and we just don't, we don't, we don't get the message. We don't follow the instructions. It's like the old guy that went to the doctor and he said, the doctor said, and the wife not married 40 years, our sex life is just finished. She could care less. He said, I'm going to give you this prescription. And he said, when you go home tonight and you're having a cup of tea or coffee before you go to bed, he said, just drop a couple of these in her. So they were sitting there and he said, sweetheart, he said, look at that gorgeous moon. And she looked out the window and he dropped two in her and he said, to hell, I'll put two in mine too. So he did. <laughs> and they both went to bed and fell sound asleep. About three o'clock in the morning, she woke up out of this dead sleep and sat up and threw her hands up and said, I need a man. 
But two minutes later, he said, I'm through his, I'm said, me too. <laughs> you don't need to wish nothing on a drunk. Leave him alone, he'll screw it up himself. <laughs> you never have to get even with a drunk. Leave him or her alone. We self-destruct. We're designed that way. We're not good get-even people. If we break even, we're ahead of the game. I'm in the horse racing business. I see guys standing there, men particularly, every day saying, Jesus, I pray to God to win that triactor today. And then they'll say, boy, I sure don't believe in this God stuff. Uh, really? Well, then don't ask them to win the triactor. You know, an atheist is a person with no invisible means of support. <laughs> and, 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 and we got loads of them. We got loads of them. But I stayed in that jewelry business for two and a half years, and it's interesting. This man I worked for, uh, he was a Danish man, and there was a fellow come in, a longshoreman. And uh, he talked just like Jack Brennan, because he had been hit, kicked in the face so many times on the skid road and beat up. But he finally sobered up and got on the waterfront, and he met a girl that worked at Safeway. And he was getting engaged. And Eric is sober 36 years now. But it's hard to understand him talking. And he come in, he's very dirty in his old coveralls, and, and he put an order in for an engagement ring, which was $3,100, and I want to tell you that. Ragnar said, I don't want to see that man in this store again. And I, I didn't even have to think about it. I had a program led by. I said, you won't. And I said, you won't see me here again either. I'll be finished on Friday. And I left on Friday. I went straight across to North Vancouver and got a job selling Electrolux vacuum cleaners to get some experience in rejection. <laughs> and I want to tell you, if you want to practice this program, go selling vacuum cleaners. You'll practice it in all your affairs. You'll practice it where there isn't even any affairs. And they still tell this story about me at... at conventions of Electrolux in Vancouver and why I did it again don't ask me why you did it I have no idea I went to this door in North Vancouver it was my fourth or fifth day on the job and I'd been all fired up you know them motivation talks on Monday by some guy that can't sell and <clears throat> I pressed this lady's doorbell and she opened the door and I gave her my card and I said good morning I'm Mr. Finnamore I'm your Electrolux representative in this area now and I never knew the doors could be slammed that hard and a house still stay like erect, upright. <laughs> I'd never done direct selling in my bloody life. And why I did it, I don't know. I went around the back of the house and rang her doorbell. She come there and I said, God, I hope you're not as unhappy as the lady was just at the front door. <laughs> and there I, again, I got another very strange look. She said, would, uh, would you like a coffee? I said, I'd like one. And I went in and had a coffee. I never sold her a vacuum cleaner or a shampoo or nothing. I never had to. I never had to. I sold a ton of vacuum cleaners and shampooers. And I never sold one to an AA member, and I never sold one to any member of my family. It's easy to sell to the people who can't say no to you, and then when you run out of them, you're done selling, and you move on to the next thing. After that, I got into the business of... Wood stoves and fireplace inserts. A man phoned me up and said, we're opening a new company and your name was put forward to manage our store. And you, you, you've got to stop and think where I come from. 
I have very minimal education. I've never taken a course in anything in my life. And this man said my name was put forward to manage a company. And I wound up doing the most advertising of any one-man operation in the city of Vancouver, the most sales of any pertaining stores in that business for a 10-year period, and all because I dealt with objections. When someone walked into my store to buy something, I said, look, I know what you're thinking right now. you got what it looks like first, how much is it second, and what's the guarantee? I took that right out of their mind because that's always what we're concerned about. What it look like? How much is it? How long is it guaranteed for? I said, oh, what, how long do you want to guarantee? 25 years, that's what it's guaranteed for. We ain't going to be here anyway. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, we got more outfits today selling guarantees. See, that's the one thing about AAA. They don't have to tell you there's a guarantee. If you don't do what it says here, there is no guarantee. There's only one statistic in this whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the word rarely. The only statistic they've ever compiled. And so I think these are the things that we have to look at. And I met a fellow, uh, some people may know here, I met him when my third year sober. At a, he was speaking at a roundup, and I said, could I have a talk to you? And you know, and we know now it's no big deal, but it was then. This man was all dressed up. He looked like a California pimp in his bright outfit seats. And... Uh, I said, could I talk to you? And he spent a whole afternoon, as he was the guest speaker, just with me. And you don't know what that made me feel like for anybody to spend an afternoon just with me. And he talked about a step meeting that old Elmer and a few people had put together. It's called Novelco. The word is Greek for novice alcoholic, new alcoholic. And I went back to PA several trips to see what they've done in this process. And it's not out of New York. It's a, it's a, a method for doing the steps. And so I, I got one of these uh, deals from Melbourne. I went back to Vancouver. And over the period I've been in that step meeting and chaired it for 30 years. And over that period of time, I've done up enough paperwork to cover both of these tables. And uh, most of it is conference approved because it all come out of these two books. I have a 13-page deal called Sex and Sobriety, and it tells you which page you'll find it in the 12 and 12, and in the big book, it's all in there. If you've never tried it, don't knock it. It's all right. I have a, a step one all done up, like who's died in your life, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, grandmothers, grandfathers, which one affected you the most? Well, it was Grandma Mary. Why? Because she let me get away with the most, and that set up the pattern of who I run with. How many girlfriends did you have as a teenager? Well, 12, 14, 16. How long did each one last and who broke it off? You or her. And we'll find out. We set out a pattern. If you don't like my music, baby, don't dance to it. I think the only way that I can look at it, where my life had become unmanageable, it doesn't say my ability to make a living. Everybody's judged today by how much they make, <laughs> not how they know how to live. So we set, set this meeting up, and it's going now about 30 years. There's now about 30 of them in the lower mainland. But all of a sudden, it got me to start looking at the steps as they're printed, not as I interpret them. And I think interpretation in the dictionary says avoidance of truth. So I think once I got down to looking at these as they're printed, what a different outlook it gave me on life. I thought, hell, these were written just for me, not for you. Just for me. And then when you read them that way, they're just for you. It's all these steps I realized after about five years of doing them are in past tense. 
We admitted. We came to believe. We made a decision. We took an inventory. We admitted. We humbly asked. It doesn't say we'll humbly ask. They're all in past tense. There's a lot of assumptions here <laughs> that when you come in here, you're just going to do this. But instead, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Nowhere does it say I'm an alcoholic. It says I'm powerless. If you look up the meaning of the word powerless, it'll remove any doubt that you can take one more drink and guarantee your next move. You know, when a ship loses its, its propeller or its rudder, it's powerless. And what does it do? It goes around in circles. It just keeps going around in circles. You know, it's amazing when you're out in the ocean and drowning and someone throws you a life jacket, you don't look it over to see if it's made in Japan, you just grab it. But boy, when you get to shore, I want union products. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how differently we behave depending on what turf we're standing on. And it said my life had become unmanageable, not my ability to make a living. And it also told me that it's not on the way. It says it's arrived, Fenimore. <laughs> Your life had become. You see, and I always thought that, you know, yeah, I'm a little bit, you know, there is no doubt there's a gopher in the garden, but, but I think we can straighten this out. No, it says it's awry. And it said we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. It doesn't say we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. <laughs> it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. There is no other options could restore us to sanity when in the big book if you look at sanity and insanity it says positive and negative thinking it's got nothing to do with mental hospitals but I got into vintage cars a few years ago and that's one of the hobbies that I've loved and started restoring cars and I think it's important to know what the word restore says in the dictionary a dictionary is a very important book to me when you look at restore it says to return to original form and we'll say we're a bunch of miracles and uh, really, all it did to me was restore me to what I was as a little boy that I trusted and I believed and I loved and I forgave. It said we'd be restored to a positive way of thinking. It's interesting, out of the whole 12 steps, only one do they ask us to make a decision because I guess they figure that's not one of our strong points. Agree, <laughs> agreeing with them, yes, but not making them. It says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives, our thinking and our actions, it talks about in the book, our thinking and our actions, and it says we turn it over to the care of God, like Linda said yesterday, as we understand it. And so right there, I think it's important, it tells me I better have an understanding. I've done an inventory, i found a manager, I'm going to turn it over to him. And so when people say that I don't believe in God or I don't have an understanding of God, it pretty well stops you right there. Not that you can't stay sober and go to meetings and carry on, but as far as going through the process, of going through the process, I can ask a couple to, would you babysit our son tonight? We're going to the play. And that baby is left in their care. But when the play's over, I must go back and get him and carry on nurturing him and raising him. I can turn lots of things, you know. I listen to people say, well, when God wants me to have a job, I'll get him. And I'm thinking, who in hell are you praying to? I've been looking for God's employment agency for 60 years. I can't find it. I needed a drink to go look for a job. Once I got the drink, I was too good for it. I mean, uh, God... I, I, I just think that borderline between humility and senility is quite thin. <laughs> I, so, these are the things I hear people say, I turn it over every day, and I said, what's it? And what they're trying to say is, I turn everything over, and I'm just going to sit here. Today's only the tomorrow that I worried about yesterday. And that ain't what it says at all. 
It says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. Then it said we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. In the book it says more will be revealed. I think what's interesting if I look at step six and seven in this big book is two paragraphs. If I look at it in the 12 and 12, which come out in 1950, you'll find 13 pages. Quite a difference. So I use both. And I use the, the diagram that's in the big book and the step four, and I have four other ones all made out as well. I have one step four to the 32 questions. And the first question says, what is it in other people that bother you? Work on that one for about a month and a half. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important for me to look at every aspect of this personality of mine. Every aspect of it. Like self-esteem and, and my sex life. I mean... Those are three factors, but there's a whole lot goes into self-esteem and self-worth. And we're always looking to get an answer from somebody else, and it comes from the very first word, from self. The book says we were the makers of our own problems. Bottles were only symbols. So now that you got rid of the liquor, you're into the ism. I'm the makers of our own problems. I live a very good life today. I live a life today where I've had to totally change my concepts of how I treat you. My wife, like she said, yes, she spoke. We have never had a fight or a, an argument. Never. Since the day we met. I don't think we ever will. I, I don't do nothing today that I want to do. Whether we're going to eat, and to eat, where do you want to go, honey? What do you want to do? If I'm watching a football game and she's going over to the ball, I just shut it off and let's go. We do everything together. She's two-thirds of my marriage. Like American Express card. I don't leave home without her. <laughs> I think that's important. I, would, I think I could comfortably say that 85% of every garment in her wardrobe, I buy it. And not with her. Not always with her. I go on my own. I'll buy a skirt, two dresses, whatever. And yet I got many men that I'll sponsor and they'll say, well, I gave my wife a check, check for Christmas to get herself something. I don't know what she likes. I said, bloody look at her. You've been married to her for 20 years and you don't know what she likes. She wears a lot of yellows and reds and black. I mean, the whole thing about it is I have to change. I have to change. You know, I when I looked at those married vows, it wasn't to have and to hold, it was to heave and to hold. And, and I realized that I had to change that around. My whole life is based on how I treat her. She's the most important person in my life today. I don't rent that much space in my head to anybody I don't want there. Nobody. I got six kids. I love playing games, but I hate losing. So I don't play games. When you start playing games with the kid, you've lost. They got excuses they haven't even used yet. I got 14 grandchildren. And just a few months ago, uh, I was presented with my second great-grandchild. And if you don't know how I feel inside and how I treated people and what I was like to people, you have no idea what it means to me just to have a grandchild say, Hi, Grandpa. Just to have a granddaughter phone me on the phone and say, Hi, Grandpa, I just wanted to hear your voice. You don't realize for 30 years nobody wanted to hear my voice. My wife didn't want to hear it. This program is a process to allow you to get back into society. And when you're getting back in there, for God's sake, include your wife with you. That's why it's not I. It's us, we, ours. And that's part of the process. I, I just have so many close friends today, and, and I'm amazed at their, their basic attitude. 
And it's not a statement. It's an attitude. If people don't like me the way they are, it's growing. And I'm just thinking, what a hell of a way. And wondering why I'm living alone. And say, well, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like a wife, but, you know, I, I just can't find one that, that matches my personality. You never will. <laughs> there ain't none left. They've moved to, the, to Europe. I mean, it says that I'm the one that has to change. It says, just for today, I will adjust myself to what is and not try to change everything to my own desires. It says, just for today, I'll do two things I don't want to do. I figured that out and I thought, oh my God, that's 62 a month. <laughs> two things I don't want to do. And what is the alcoholics thinking? I don't want to, I don't like to, I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I want to, I like to, and I have to. In my position today with the, with the horse racing industry, the Pacific Racing Association, the BC Racing Commissions, our judges, and my board of directors, I have never once had an argument with any of them. Never. I had a lady bring her daughter into my office to see me one day, and she sat right down and sat right in front of me and looked at me and said, I think you're a real phony. I said, you're right, sweetie. What else bothers you? And she's right. Maybe nobody in here is phony. But if you look up phoniness in the dictionary, it says refusing to see conditions as they really are. <laughs> Many times I don't want to see my colleagues, our welfare system, our penal system, our policing system, our justice system, my wife or whatever, as they really are. But we don't like these words. And I was in small debts court 41 times my first two years sober. And an old timer got up at a meeting one time and he had tried real hard to talk to me. But you see, one-on-one -on -one didn't work in some areas. And he got up and he said, you know, Finnamore, you've been talking about all this money you owed. You ever considered repaying it? And I thought, that's a different approach. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really, uh, I thought the fact that I, I recognized that I owed Marty some money and I said, well, I owe Marty $40. You know, that's where the word stress comes from. I never knew where it ever came from. It's admitting that you owe something or you've done something but don't want to do anything about it. That's stress. <laughs> and everyone says, well, I'm stressed out. And I'd say, well, go make your car payment. You won't be half as stressed out. He's stressed out because they're going to repossess his car. We're the makers of our own problems, not society. Not society. So today, I have to change constantly. And so that's why I'm so put so much emphasis on these inventories. I have 32 symptoms out on paper that leads up to relapse. I have the 37 principles that comes out of this book as well as the 12 promises and the 12 steps. 37 principles which are mentioned like dependability, reliability, integrity. These are, these are principles. These are principles. Uniqueness is not a principle. So... When it says we practice these principles in all my affairs, I always practiced affairs with no principles. And they said, no, we got a whole new approach in here, Luke. Different setup altogether. <clears throat> so then we got to the part where it says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being. The exact nature, there's no S on that. It's singular of our wrongs. I'd done a retreat last fall in Oregon. It's the retreat that Father Barney started some 50 years ago. And it's a large men's retreat in Oregon up in, at a... Catholic monastery and they had four priests there to do step fives and they allowed everybody 30 minutes for a step five and I thought I've done over 900 step fives at Maple Ridge treatment centers alone 
And I'd done one lady's uh, step five, and she had written 143 pages while she was in treatment on her step four. And I bet read books that weren't that long. And this whole thing is not to look at how bad you are. It's to look at why you were that bad. And, you know, I could say I screwed around on my wife, and they'd say, we know that, we want to know why. They stripped the britches right off you in this outfit. <clears throat> I was a liar. Well, now, if i got to write down all the lies, that's another lie. And I was a thief. If i got to write down everything I stole, because uh, it says it's not uncommon for us to over-exaggerate our wrongs. We seem to want to prove to people how rotten we were and how angry we were and how bad we are. If you're angry, I'm angry at a 50 people for the same reason. I don't have to name the whole 50 and what I did to every one of them. We want to get down to the exact nature, sing, no S on that word, of my wrongs. And boy, it really makes it pretty neat. And then it says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. What is humility? You know, it's the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. I have a sign hanging between our 12 steps and 12 traditions in my place of business. And it's all framed and it says, Serenity is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. That's serenity. If you're living, say, I'm just so serene, nothing's happening. Well, you haven't been outdoors yet. <laughs> I mean, conflict is there. If you ain't meeting it, you ain't doing much. It's no great trouble to go through a whole life in AA and never be criticized. It's easy. Don't do nothing. <laughs> so I think when I look at these these steps, they're laid out exactly for it. And we have paperwork on every one of them that's been taken out of this book because people have a habit of not wanting to read the book. Carry them, yes, because it looks impressive to be at a big book study with a big book. <laughs> and if not only that, it makes sense to have it there because that's what you're at. But to actually get people, it says in here, we beg of you to study this book. It says, though you be but one man with this book in your hand, it says, we know it contains all the answers you will need. It's interesting. People can't, says you can't say you're cured. Isn't it interesting? Bill looked across the table at Henrietta and said to her, the Lord has been so wonderful to me, curing me of this terrible disease that I just want to keep talking about it and telling people about it. The next sentence, that sentence, the Lord has been so wonderful to me, curing me of this terrible disease, has become the golden text for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can say whatever in hell you want if it's part of your process of living a better life and treating people better and wanting better things for other people, not for me. You can say whatever you want. I know it says we are not cured, we are given a daily reprieve, which is contingent upon our spiritual growth. But there's other things as you read on. It says more will be revealed. So don't just stop there. Read the rest of the book. It's hidden. They're in awful places where they put stuff. <laughs> but it's all in here. You see, if you look at the spiritual experience in the back of the book, it says what has happened as he has undergone a, through a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that which he could not have done on his unaided strength alone. He has undergone a profound alteration. Not her, not them. He has. And that's what has happened. And then it said we made a list of all persons we have harmed. It didn't say hurt. <laughs> See, we change... People say, well, I've hurt a lot of people. I want to tell you, I can leave here... And I can tear John or Peggy to shreds for the next five years. And all of a sudden they hear about it. And they'll say, how can a friend hurt me like that? Now it's hurt. 
for five years has been harm. Dr. Bob says to Bill, we must watch our errant tongues, and it's comfortable to know that from that day to this, there's never been a good word of gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but you see, what happens is the tongue located in the damp area has a tendency to slip when moving fast. So I, I, I think that, that this is what these steps are designed for, is for me to make a list of the people we have harmed and become willing. There's a willingness action to make amends to them all. And you see, I hate to say it, but an, an apology really is not an amend. An apology is merely an acknowledgement that I said it, thought it, or done it. When they amend the Criminal Code of Canada, they don't all stand up and apologize. Maybe they should. They change something. An amend is to change. When I come to, to Marty and said, you know, I'm very sorry for what I said to you last Saturday night. That's an apology. The amend is don't ever say it again. And that's why we don't want to make amends. We'd sooner just apologize. There's no relief to me at all in an apology if it is not carried up, carried on with the process of this program. And then it said we made direct amends to such people wherever possible. It don't say whenever possible. It's, uh, it's very important that I don't change these. You see, because my thinking is, is I'll say I owe Bill an apology and when I see it, I'll make it. That is what this step says. It says go find Bill. It says wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others, which is third parties or people that have never been notified. But it says go find them. And you can rest assured the way I phrased it, I'm not going to see him if my eyesight serves me correctly. <laughs> if I spot him, I move over two blocks. And then it says we continue to take personal inventory, and it says when we were wrong, not if we were wrong. And it says promptly admitted it, it doesn't say to explain it. And my theory is, is I'll say to John, you know, well, I'm sorry I didn't get over there last Saturday night. And if he don't say nothing, I'll say, but now I'm going to tell you the reason why. And give me ten minutes and I'll have him apologize. And he was even at the party. And that's what I want. <laughs> this thing is really laid out so that I can really live comfortable in this house that God gave me to live in. That everything I've ever dreamed of as a little boy has come true. And every place I've ever wanted to go, I've been. And everybody I've ever wanted to meet, I've met. When I sit in my den today and look around at the walls, I sit there and cry when I think of some of the things that's there. And I'm so grateful that I have them. And yet I'm so grateful that I've never got what I deserved. I have so many mementos. In 1985, I was invited to speak at the National Convention of the Republic of South Africa. When this man phoned me, I just couldn't believe it. He asked me if I'd speak at this convention. I said, where? And he said, in South Africa. And I thought, oh, my God almighty, where's South Africa? I've never been out of the camp. <laughs> and I got this plane ticket, and I flew to London and spent a week or so there, and then to Egypt, and then to Nairobi, and down into Johannesburg. And about an hour out of Johannesburg, a little hostess come back on British Airways. And I was sitting there just crying my guts out. She said, can I help you, sir? I said, no, sweetie, you wouldn't understand. I went to a country that was riddled with strife. This is before. This was in March and in April. They made their first big move in, in the apartheid. I lived three days in Soweto. The only white person and seven and a half million black people, and they treated me like a king. 
I wish you could see what they presented me with in Soweto. It's something that is only presented to dignitaries and heads of states who goes into that. I'm so grateful that I was treated like a king, and yet I know what goes on. And so this is part of the process, is for me to see the difficulties you're having, not to just bring you this great message of survival, but to go and live with you, eat your food, be a part of your culture. And I spent three months there, and they flew me to 26 different places throughout South Africa. And then I went into Nairobi and Kenya, and my final stop, which I will always remember two things about South Africa. One is that partway through it, I went to Durban, then they took me to the va- through the Valley of a Thousand Hills into Zululand. And Budalizi, who's head of the Zulu tribe, the year before refused entry to the President of the United States of America. And 18 months later, he led a tramp from Vancouver in there because his wife had 18 months of sobriety. This is a program that has broken down every barrier there is. The good are half bad and the bad are half good. I can't look at anybody as different than me. And when my final stop for six hours was in Ethiopia, just 86 miles over the border, at a famine camp, and I stood there and watched little babies' tummies stop moving, and then put them in a a piece of canvas and take them over and throw them in a ditch, and I'm belly aching because I've had crab dinner three times in one week. I don't know what difficulties are, but I've had an eye opener. And that's why that every year we've set up a plan I have for years that I go to a different part of the world and I live with the people. And I see how they live and what they go through. And I become aware of one thing that AA program is printed the same, but it is not the same all over the world. It is not the same all over the world. So be so grateful for the freedoms we have here, the opportunities we have here, and what we can do here, and where we can live, any place and they can't put you out. So I think these are the things that I become aware of when it comes time to make amends, is that I better change. I better change. And it said we were wrong, promptly admitted. And then we said we sought through prayer and meditation. It tells me that's the only media. There is no other way. You can try anything else you want. It said we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Conscious means awake or aware can't do that when you're sleeping. That's not meditating, that's sleeping. Conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. What's God's will for us? Tells us in the book to be happy, joyous, and free, and the power to carry that out. Then it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. What's a spiritual awakening? Tells you in the dictionary. A complete transformation of thought. If you have completely changed your way of thinking as a result of these steps, it says, then we try to carry this message, not my message, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. See, I think there's a big difference between a 12-step call, 12-step work, and carrying this message. (laughs) There's a big difference. It tells me here, until I've done these steps, I don't have a message to carry. I can go on a 12-step call, take them to a meeting, set up chairs, make coffee, put out ashtrays. I can do 12-step work. But when it comes to this carrying this message, I pray to God that I carry the message that is outlined in these papers that was written by people who are far more erudite than I and much wiser than I and went through much more tough times than I. So these are the things that I look at. I have responsibilities today that I can keep. 
Our first Christmas, six weeks sober, somebody brought Winnie and the kids and I a Christmas tree and the decorations. And they brought a turkey and all the trimmings for us. And somebody paid our hydro bill and had our lights hooked up. And somebody seen that those all those children had one Christmas present. And that's all they got because we couldn't get them. And as I went along in life and was able to do so, I set up a little program where I do my own hampers. I do them every Christmas, and I know exactly who they're going to. And I've done that for many years. And when my son was two years old, we were at a convention. He got into a can of Drano, and he ate it. And he rubbed it all over his face, and he spent seven months in the hospital. And they put new eyelids on him and upper lips and everything. And you would never know it today other than one eyelid don't close all the way. When he was 18 years old, I took him back to see the surgeon that done the work, Dr. Cordemash, and he's a massive man. And to see these two men standing there, cradled in each other's arms, and this doctor, neurosurgeon, crying, and he said, you know, it's amazing. He said, you never hear too much about your good jobs, but you sure hear about your bad ones. And isn't that a tendency of people to point out the, the goof you are? You know, this jerk and this idiot I work for. I, what are the ingredients of a jerk? <laughs> I have to be very careful what I call people, because if I didn't have the same qualities, I'd have never spotted them. <laughs> I have no idea what the hell an idiot is. I guess I'm it. <laughs> but they asked me to change. I think that's the whole thing about it. I don't want to just be an image. I'd like to be a feeling, to be a part of, to be an intricate part of the process. And so I think these are the things that I was able to do. And that same little boy, when he came back from California, and I phoned the children's hospital where he spent so much time, and they built a brand new one. And we wanted to put a couple of TVs in, and they said, no, we have them in every room. So we went up to see this nurse, and she happened to be still working there, and she remembered Darrell when he came in. His whole face went like ground beef, like hamburger. You couldn't see nothing because he rubbed that grain all over his face. So she said, I don't know what we can do. And I said, do you have a room here anywhere? And they had an empty room. I said, why don't we make an exercise room? So Daryl and I went out and we got some little trampolines and a set of weights and a set of weights to lift. And we got four rowing machines and put them in this room. And I went up, Daryl and I, every Tuesday night with these kids. And if you think you got problems and you got nothing to do, go to a children's hospital and see a little guy like this pulling on a rowing machine. And he ain't going to get no better. But you can see the sparkle in his eyes, and you could see him smile. And you know, 75% of the smiles you give away, you get back. And the 25% you don't get back, they needed it worse than you. <laughs> it's only a curve that straightens a lot of things out. We don't see these things. Why? Because we're wrapped up in self. We don't get the message. All we see things is how we see it. It's like the bricklayer that went to this nuthouse to see all these alcoholic patients. About 10 o'clock in the morning, he thought he'd go for a walk and have a coffee. He went out, and here was this guy with a wheelbarrow full of cement and a whole bunch of bricks building a wall. <laughs> and he watched him for a while. He said, pray tell me why you're in here. He said, well, my family resented me, so they had me committed. <laughs> well, he said, I want to tell you, I've never seen brickland like that in my life. It's a piece of symmetrical beauty. He said, we need people on the outside with your talents. He said, I'm on the board of this hospital. He said, when the board meets on Thursday... I'm going to stand on your behalf. And he said, I'll have you out of here on Monday. And he turned to walk away, and this jackass threw a brick and hit him right in the back of the head, and down he went. And when he come to, 
He turned around and looked at this bird, and he said, Now, why did you do that? He said, I just didn't want you to forget Thursday. And <laughs> this is the whole thing. And I'm going to tell you one more that will sort of tell you how come you got in this outfit. It's like the guy that died and went to heaven. And God ushered him into this magnificent room, and he said to him, he said, get unpacked. And he said, when you get unpacked, I'll come back and get you and show you around. So he come back and walked into the room, and the guy said to God, he said, what's this I see way down here in the clouds? He said, there's a whole bunch of young people down there, rock music going, drinking, dancing, having a ball. He said, that's hell. He said, you sent me to the wrong place. That's where I'm supposed to be. They gathered up his gear, and they sent him down. And he arrived in this stinking, dirty, filthy, grungy hole of a room. Satan come in. The guy said, what's this? He said, this is hell. He said, what's this I see up in the clouds? He said, there's a whole bunch of people up there, young people drinking, dancing, smoking pot, having a ball. He said, that's our marketing department. <laughs> and Paul, the crystal chandeliers light up the paintings on your wall. This is what got us in here was the marketing departments, and I want to tell you that's what will take you out of here. This is what got us in here was the marketing departments, and I want to tell you that's what will take you out of here, is the marketing departments. God has a job for you. He has a place for you. Everything is great. Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. Everything is just the way it was planned. When we talk of gratitude, I, I think of a number of things. I think of all the things that I have today that are so unnecessary. I think of all the things that I enjoy and have today where I really don't need. They're just unnecessary items. And it reminds me of the story of the guy who built this big condominium complex in California. And the contractor come to him when it was all built. He said, where do you want the sidewalks? He said, I don't want any. I want this whole thing in grass. And he thought that's strange, but anyway, they planted her all in grass. And that fall, the contractor come back, and he seen a little path going across the grass to a 7-Eleven store, and another one going to the bus stop, and another path that went downtown. And that's where he put the sidewalks. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. This is a program that tells me, don't put sidewalks where no one's going to walk on them. Find out where they're walking and lay the cement. I'm so grateful that all the things that I'm able to enjoy today are because of you. Nine years ago, they came and approached me and said, we've got a program going up onto the racetrack, and we'd like for you to set up our program. And it's called the Winners Foundation. It's amazing, and they stick with the winners, they say. And we started that. And today we have some 228 people clean and sober on two racetracks from every walk in life, from the ladies on the betting line to the racing secretary. There's no discrimination. At one of the army camps in, in Canada, when you walk in the AA meeting, it says, Abandon rank, all ye who enter here. <laughs> Very difficult for a private to walk up and say, Hi, Tom, and he's a colonel. <laughs> but this is what AA is all about. And so that's what I do today. I work on the racetrack. And I remember a jockey one day, I was playing golf with him, and he said, You know, riding a horse is pretty much like AA. And I said, What do you mean? He said, You just go to the front and improve your position. <laughs> And so, just go to the front. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Hold your head up high. I believe everybody comes here for sobriety and to walk with dignity. There's nothing so bad that it cannot be worse. There's nothing that time cannot mend. And troubles, no matter how many you have, must surely come to an end. 
You have stumbled well, so have I in my time. Don't think of the past and regret. And you're sorry, God knows, so leave it at that. Don't th let the past be the past and forget. Don't despair, don't give up, but just be yourself, the self that is highest and best. And forgive all my faults, and I'll forgive yours. We leave up to God. All the rest. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be down there. When you listen to Marty and Peggy on Friday night and come all the way through, and Jay last night, and I thought so much yesterday when my wife was telling of the letter that her mom wrote to her to explain Linda's whole life story. And that was the last letter she ever got from her mom. I believe it was part of God's plan because about eight weeks later, her mom was walking through the door from getting her hair done and just unlocked the door and dropped in. And when she said at, at that funeral, there was a lady some 90 years old spoke and said that they were without a doubt the poorest family in that whole region. And yet to see how that whole family lives today, they live to give and they give to live. You people have been so good to me. You've been so good to me. I've made some new friends here. I've made some friends here that I'll keep very close touch with. Because we sort of think that there's a miracle cure just by coming to a meeting. The mind can only absorb what the seat can endure, and I know it's sore right now. <laughs> but don't feel bad. i got to sit for seven hours on a bloody airplane yet. So don't. Uh, and I love every minute of it, I'm going to tell you. But I often think of the story of the minister that went to this western town. And he was up behind the pulpit, and he looked down, and there was one cowboy there. And he walked down to him, and he said, well, there's only two of us. Do you think we should hold a service? Well, Reverend, he said, I don't know a great deal about preaching. But he said, I know quite a bit about cattle. And if I pulled up to a crowd load of hay, and there was a cow there, I'd feed it. So he got the message. And he went up and gave that poor bugger everything he had in scripture, verse, and song. And when he got down, he went down, he said, what do you think? And he said, well, Reverend, he said, I don't know a great deal about preaching, but I know quite a bit about cattle. And if I pulled up to a crowd load of hay and there was a cow there, he said, I wouldn't give it the whole load. So, <laughs> so I think this is one of the things. This thing comes in piecemeal. Take a little bit at a time. Chew it well. Digest it well. Enjoy the nourishment that comes from it. Our paths will cross again. I'll think of you in my daily prayers. I'll think of the ones that I met here that are having difficulties and the ones I met here who their partners are having difficulties. But there's one thing we do quite often here, and maybe the significance only lasts while it's here. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you a little story, and it might remind you, and then I'll shut up. There was a farming couple in the prairies in Canada, and they went out in the fall, and it was cool in the fall. It was a frosty night, and they took their little boy with them. And as children sometimes do, he ran off and got lost. And they hollered and yelled and screamed, and they couldn't find him. And they went back in and phoned the reserve army quarters and asked if they could send some men out. And he said, we'll have an officer and some men there in the morning. In the morning they arrived, and they went out to this field. And the officer said to the men, he said, line up across this field. And they did. And he said, join hands. And they did. And he said, go across the field. And they did. 
And they found the little fella, and he was dead. He had perished. His daddy reached up and held him in his arms and looked at his wife. And he said, you see, sweetheart, if we'd held hands last night, we wouldn't have lost. I only pray that I can be the type of friend you've been to me. Good day and God bless you.